Nothing is more foundational, nothing more crucial, nothing more vital to the Christian life and experience than worship. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. And on today's program, Tom begins a brand new eight-part series titled Tear Down Every Idol. Throughout this series, you'll discover why and how every person is hardwired for worship. But if you don't worship the true God, you'll worship something else. But what does idolatry have to do with true worship in today's church? After all, aren't idols something from the ancient past, something the Old Testament Israelites battled? Well, as you'll discover, that's not so. Having a foundational understanding of the timelessness of idolatry, its ancient and modern forms, is absolutely essential before you can come to an understanding of true biblical worship. Friends, you'll be enriched and challenged by what you hear throughout this study. And Tom, can you help us understand why it's so important to grasp the reality of idolatry before properly worshiping God with our whole hearts? You know, Bill, it's because we were hardwired to worship, as you said, and worship we will. And if we're not worshiping the true God, then we're worshiping some substitute. We're worshiping an idol. It may not be the sort of traditional piece of wood or metal that we're falling down in front of. That's pretty rare in our day. But worship we are and will. And so it's so important to examine ourselves, to make sure we understand what idolatry is, and then to see if we have allowed our own hearts to depart from the worship of the true God into some worthless substitute, something that is, bears no resemblance to who he is and therefore isn't worthy of our worship at all. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible right now as we join Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. Nothing is more foundational, nothing more crucial, nothing more vital to the Christian life and experience than worship. I think it's good at the very start to lay down three foundational principles. This will be the foundation on which everything we have to say in the next number of weeks will be built. Three very basic foundational principles. Number one, the end for which God made the world, the end for which God made the world was his own glory. This really deserves a message all of its own, and I'm sure at some point I will do just that. This morning, instead, let me just touch on it as one of these foundational principles. I think most of us understand this even intuitively as believers. We understand what Jonathan Edwards said in his little tract called The End for Which God Created the World. He says, all that is ever spoken of in the Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. Robert Raymond Put it this way, the Christian who gives the Bible its due will learn that just as the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, so also the impulse that drives God and the thing he pursues in everything he does is his own glory. 
You can see that, of course, especially in God's great acts. I've reminded you of this before. There are a number of passages that deal with God's glory, but just think for a moment about the greatest acts of God. If those were for his glory, then certainly it's a demonstration that everything God does is for his glory. Think for a moment about creation. Why is it that God created this ball flung out into the vast reaches of space? Why did he create the universe in which we dwell? Psalm 19.1 reminds us that the heavens declare, they preach the glory of God. Romans 1 reminds us that God put his glory on display in the created world, even his invisible power and his deity. What about providence? What about God's ordering the affairs of the world to accomplish his ends? Well, in Isaiah chapter 48, Isaiah 48 and verse 11, God reminds us about his work of providence and why it is that he does what he does. Isaiah 48 verse 11, he's been talking about what he's doing with Israel. And in what follows, he declares his work with Israel and all that he's going to do. In the middle of that context of God's providence with his people, he says this, verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. God says, I'm going to so order the affairs of the nation Israel for this reason, and for this purpose, to accomplish my glory. What about the great work of salvation? If you look at John chapter 12, in fact, turn there with me for a moment. John chapter 12, Jesus has just spoken with the Greeks that came seeking him the week before his crucifixion. He foretells his death. And notice in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus anticipating all that was coming in the week that lay ahead of him. He says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. He's talking about his crucifixion, the bearing of God's wrath on behalf of sinners. And in that context, he says, Father, glorify your name. God, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my sin bearing, in the midst of my enduring your divine wrath against sin, be glorified. And if there's any doubt about it, notice the Father's response. Verse 28, then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. God said, that's exactly right. That's what your work at the cross is all about. It's to bring glory to my name. And of course, the personal application of salvation, that same point is made in Ephesians chapter 1, where we're told that we are chosen by God We are saved, we are rescued for the praise of the glory of his grace. God acts for his own glory. And that is absolutely foundational to an understanding of worship. The second foundational principle that builds on that one that we need to just have as a basic presupposition to our study, because the end for which God made the world was his own glory, number two, The chief end of man, therefore, is to glorify God. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Of course, you remember, those of you who grew up uh, with any form of the catechism, either the, the Presbyterian form or the Baptist form, you're familiar with the great reality. What is the chief end of man? 
to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Why is that the answer? Well, it's taught throughout the scripture, but my favorite is in Romans chapter 1. Turn there with me for a moment. Romans chapter 1, here we see it negatively. In verse 18 of Romans 1, we find that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against those who hold down the truth. What truth? The truth about God. Notice he goes on in verse 19 to say, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident. Listen, there isn't a single person in the universe who will ever be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and be able to say, I didn't know. God made it evident. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now watch verse 21. They fail to respond to the revelation of God, the truth about God. How should they have responded? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Literally, they did not glorify him as God. Do you understand that that is the chief sin of mankind? From God's perspective, man's chief end is to give him glory, and to fail to do that is the greatest sin as an intelligent being made in the very image of God, according to the Scripture. The primary way that man brings glory to God is by worshiping him. Worship is the ultimate priority of every person. Or let me put it in the form of a third foundational principle. Not only is the end for which God made the world his own glory, not only is the chief end of man, therefore, to glorify God, but the third foundational principle would be this. You were made to worship. You were made to worship. We'll study this at great length, but let me just sort of um, introduce to you a passage we'll study. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You remember Jesus interchanged with a Samaritan woman, and as soon as things become uncomfortable, as soon as the Lord puts his finger on the sin in her life, She changes the subject, as unregenerate people love to do. You've encountered this at work or in talking with your family. When it gets hot, when it gets uncomfortable, when the issue becomes their own personal sin, let's talk about something else. How about those bears? In this case, she changes it to the issue of worship. Where exactly should we worship? Verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now watch verse 22. You worship what you do not know. You don't even know the true God, and yet you're still worshiping. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers... Now what's implied by the phrase true worshipers? That there are false worshipers. Here's this woman worshiping something she doesn't even know. It's not the true God who's revealed himself to Israel, but she's a worshiper. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now watch the end of verse 23. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You understand that Jesus here is identifying 
the entire reason God set out on a program of redemption. It was to bring around himself and his son true worshipers. This was the divine mission. People have within themselves, they were made by God to worship. And they will worship like this woman. They will worship something, even if it's not the true God. John Calvin put it this way, since there never has been from the very first any quarter of the globe, any city, any household even, without religion, this amounts to a tacit confession that a sense of deity is inscribed on every heart. But fast forward for a moment. If you don't believe what I've said so far, fast forward to heaven. What occupies redeemed humanity in the presence of God both now and forever? What is it that mankind regenerated, made to be like he ought to be, what will he be doing forever? Turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 verse 10. The 24 elders representative here of the church in Revelation will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5 verse 14, the four living creatures kept saying amen to this paean of praise about creation and redemption and the elders fell down and worshiped what redeemed humanity, made right with God and now in his presence, what they are doing today, what you will do when God takes you from this world, what I will do both now and forever is worship because we were made to worship. You know, this is such a sad reality, isn't it? Because people spend their whole lives looking for purpose and meaning, looking for their place in the cosmos. And here it is. You were made in time and eternity to worship. I finally gave in to my wife and children and decided to add another member to our family. After stalling as long as I could, I finally got a puppy. I don't know if I was on cold medicine at the time or perhaps it was the beginning of senility. But in August, we drove to Weatherford and picked up Dickens, and he is, a little shih tzu. For the first few months, both his existence and mine were at times seriously in jeopardy. But while I'll never be the dog whisperer, he and I have reached an understanding. I am and always will be the big dog. And as long as he understands that, we'll get along just fine. But before we decided exactly what kind of breed of dog to get, as is typical for me, I did a lot of research. And that research was very helpful. In my research, I discovered a number of breeds that I didn't want for a number of reasons. A lot of times it was because of why they were bred in the first place. Now, at the risk of alienating several of you who are part of the church, I discovered, for example, that we did not want any kind of terrier. Terriers are cute little dogs. If you have one, I'm thrilled for you. But they were originally bred 
to hunt and kill small rodents. Now, that in and of itself ought to raise some concerns just right out of the gate. And since most small rodents live or hide in the ground, terriers have to dig to get to those rodents. In fact, they love digging so much that they'll do it when there's not a small rodent to be seen for miles. (laughs) Terriers are hardwired to hunt for small rodents. You can dress them up in pink sweaters. You can put bows in their hair. You can teach them semi-polite behavior. But what you can never do is change what that dog was hardwired to do. And the same thing is true about man. He was made by God to worship. He can deny that. He can stay away from organized religion. He can even claim to be an agnostic or an atheist. But what he can never do is change what he was hardwired to do, and that is to worship his creator. You say, but most people don't worship, or at least don't worship the true God. So let me ask you this question. What happens when a creature made by God to worship refuses to worship the true God? Make sure you understand this because this is absolutely foundational. This is key. He does not cease to worship. He's hardwired to worship. He will worship. He is worshiping. Every human being in the world today is worshiping. You are worshiping. The question isn't, is he or she worshiping? The question is, who or what? Let me make it very personal. You are worshiping someone or something today. If it is not true biblical worship, solely, and that's the key word, solely offered to the true God, then you are engaged in what the Bible calls idolatry. Living in 21st century America, we tend to think of idolatry as the disgusting practices of ancient cultures. It just simply isn't a problem in today's world, really. Well, why is it? The World Almanac says there are some 362 million people in our world who are Buddhists. 388 million are Chinese folk religionists. 820 million are Hindus. 1.2 billion are Muslims. Do you realize that only 17% of the world's population would call themselves non-religious? Are they all worshiping the true God? Absolutely not. And what about that 17%? Are they simply not worshiping? Not on your life. Because they are hardwired by God to worship. You say, okay. But that's the world. Yeah, I understand that. But we don't worship idols in America. Well, first of all, you need to get in touch with reality because when I was at Grace Church, for example, I remember our very first Sunday back in 1987 out in Los Angeles. We were coming down the freeway, and we pull off the freeway, and we knew the church was nearby. And sitting right there was this large, attractive building. And I looked at Sheila and I said, this is wonderful. Just down the street from Grace Church is a great Chinese restaurant. Well, in fact, it happens to be the largest Buddhist temple in the Western Hemisphere. So 
Even that kind of idolatry happens here. Some people, however, think, well, you know, the real problem with our culture is not that we are superstitiously religious, that we worship idols, but that we're just too secular. That's our real problem. We're just a secular country. Listen, at the same time that our modern world congratulates itself on its criticism of the gods of wood and stone, it creates its own pantheon of idols just as prolifically. Understand this. Idolatry is as great a problem today in America, here in this city, and even here in this church as it has ever been. By the time we're done over the next few Sundays, I think you will see your Bible and our culture in a whole new light. Now today, in the time that we have remaining, I just want to give you the biblical history of idolatry. The biblical history of idolatry. I want to briefly trace its history through human history. Now this just isn't just to give you information or facts. Stay with me. There's a very important reason with immense ramifications. There was probably idolatry in the world that perished with the flood, but we're not told of it. We're told that every imagination of the hearts of men was only evil continually. And in Galatians 5, Paul tells us that idolatry is part of the work of the flesh. Certainly that world that perished was guilty of that, and so it's, we have every reason to believe there was idolatry then, but we have no record of it in Scripture. We do know that the ancient world after the flood was primarily polytheistic. You learned in your history classes about the Sumerians, what many scholars believe was the very first civilization about the mid-4th century B.C. The Sumerians had hundreds of deities in their pantheon of idolatry. They were polytheists. What about the Mesopotamians there in the Fertile Crescent, that area of the world that birthed humanity where undoubtedly the Garden of Eden was? They too were polytheistic. The Egyptians, polytheistic. Now how could this be so shortly after the flood, so shortly after God started over? Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the source of idolatry why all these cultures so soon after creation were idolaters. But when we turn to the pages of Scripture, our first biblical encounter from a chronological time frame with idolatry is with Abraham and his family. Turn back to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, the end of the chapter, verse 31, we read, Sarah took Abram, or excuse me, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees in order to enter the land of Canaan. Verse 1 of chapter 12 gives us God's command to them. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now here in Genesis, we're not told about Abram's spiritual background. But elsewhere, we learn that before his conversion, his life was filled with idolatry. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, 
and they served other gods. There were some 1,500 gods in the Mesopotamian pantheon where Ur was. Abraham's family probably worshipped the Mesopotamian moon god, Sin. God, in his marvelous sovereign grace, reaches down in the midst of that pagan idolatry and saves Abraham, sets him apart for himself. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Tear Down Every Idol. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.